0: Today, on The Art Dealer Show, co-owner of San Francisco Art Exchange, Theron Cambridge, who
1: you will hear say... Most people can't understand why I like working with psychotics or schizophrenics or mental patients. Don't understand how could you do that. It must be really hard or very difficult or very challenging. So I loved I loved it. I loved doing it.
0: This is The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern and welcome. This episode, it's a very, very special one. And it's the kind that's so special, I don't even know quite how to do the introduction. And it's not for a lack of words. Far from it. It's actually one of those cases where I have far too many words in my head to express, and, uh, and that's got me a little bit stymied, if you will. But I'll, I'll do my best, so bear with me. Today's guest, Theron Cambridge, he's much more to me than just a fantastic art dealer, and an incredible gallery owner who's done some v- remarkable things in his career, ones that I, uh, I learn from all the time. No, he, along with his business partner, Jim Hartley, who I uh, hope to have on the podcast sometime in the future, too. Those two guys gave me my very first gallery gig. And with that comes a lot. I mean, it's obvious. They set off the beginning of a career that I'm doing to this day many, many years down the road. And that, that's loaded. But along with that, that makes them my very first teachers in this business, my first mentors, the guys who showed me the ropes, and uh, maybe more important than that, the first role models I had of people who made a life's choice to sell art for a living. And with that, one other note. If Theron was a different person, if Jim was a different person, if they had different personalities, if they had different ethics in what they did, if they approached it with a different temper, I don't think I would necessarily be in this business. The industry, it attracted me, it wooed me, but that alone, I don't think that would have caused me to choose this as my life's choice. No, I think it was because of the people who delivered that industry to me. I think it's because of the people who demonstrated the job to me. I think it's because of who they are. And I've been giving a lot of thought to this. What, what about them? And, and I can go on forever, far more than I think you want to listen to in this introduction, about the many different qualities they had that, that attracted me to the field that they chose as their own. But I kept on coming up with one, and that one was this. They possess, Theron specifically... An enthusiastic curiosity that is always approached with great joy and pleasure. There's an ease about it. But that curiosity is what drives him forward every single day when he enters into the gallery. He's excited about what he does, but that excitement comes from wanting to know how to do what he does better, wanting to know what makes the artist he represents tick, wanting to understand a little bit more about what it is inside collectors that draws them towards the art that he represents. That comes from both a deep intellectual place as well as a profound emotional place. That, I think, is what wooed me in the most. Because that was what I needed to find in any career that I was to set out for myself. At least seeing through their prism, had it in spades. And most days, most most days, I thank them. I thank them for being who they are and showing me a path into a field that has been incredibly rewarding and doesn't cease to this day of exciting me and giving me new stories and adventures. And there are days that I curse them. And some of those days I even call them up and I have cursed them. But uh, I'll keep that between the two of us. Also, while giving this some thought and going over my early days in the industry and what it was about them that it helped me become attracted to it, one story, one, one memory kept them coming into my head over and over again. And it's not the best story I have, but it's one that I think if you've been doing this for a while, you're going to relate to. I had uh, only been working with them for a few months. Uh, I was a floor working art dealer. I was in the bottom run of the ladder, if you will, and uh, probably had no more than uh, 10 little leads in my my, uh, index box that I kept them in. And one evening, I was calling up uh, a prospect, a client, and I was talking about some new piece of artwork that came out or whatever and it was a little bit too late in the evening uh so the gallery director had already gone and all the other art dealers had moved on and all that was left was Jim and Theron and they had to stick around as I remained on the phone because I couldn't lock up I didn't have my own key didn't know the uh code to the alarm and the two of them took a seat down on the gallery floor at another desk and just sat there with their overcoats on and their briefcases up on the desk and uh just sat there watching me as I talked to this client, and I went on probably for another half an hour, and I was sure I was torturing them, but I just had to proceed with this conversation. And when it was done and I hung up, I thought this was it. I've I've probably upset my two new bosses. They, they probably want to go home to their families and have dinner, and they're just tired, and the last thing they want to do is sit there and wait while some cub art dealer drones on with a prospect on the phone and I apologize up, down, and sideways and they just started to smile a, a smile the kind the kind of the smile that expresses knowing something and I said, what? and they said we wish we had a hundred of that and I said, a hundred of what? And they said, people who get it and I said, get what? and I said, get That this is all the business is. This is it. It's kicking your legs up on the desk. It's getting comfortable with someone on the other end of a phone. And being able to talk. About anything. Talk until you have found your way to connect them to the art. That's it. That's the skill that you'll spend the rest of your career perfecting. I'm elaborating a little bit. But that is what they conveyed. And, uh... Not only was I uh, relieved and and comforted by their their pleasure in this, but something else. I knew I had arrived. I knew whatever this industry was, where the art of it is sitting down, connecting with another person, just being able to shoot the shit until you find your way to the goal. Well, uh, I was home. Hey, uh, at your last gallery opening, was there a line around the block? Did all the local network affiliates give you a little bit of press love? Did the big paper in town give you a feature? If the answer is no, then you need to take a card out of your friend Danny's Rolodex. You need to call up a professional publicist who does nothing but specializes in our field and our field only. I'm talking about our sponsor, Relevant Communications. Go check them out at relevantcommunications.net. Now, their owner and founder, Allison Zucker-Perlman, along with her team of professional publicists, they are the champs at this. The things they do and the people they do it for will impress you to no end. You need to go take a look at their site, and then you need to give them a call immediately. These are the specialists in a field that requires specialists. Relevant Communications. I've used them many, many times and have never been sorry. You know, I can only think of two basic ways to figure out what's going on in our profession from day to day and moment to moment. You can do what I do, board a lot of flights, travel all around the world, visit with hundreds of galleries, meet the hundreds of gallery owners, uh, and the thousands of people who work on the floors of those art galleries, and ask the questions, what's happening, what's new, what's selling really well, what, what, what things have you figured out this year that you didn't know last? Or you can actually read a publication who does all of that for you, Art World News. Art World News has been doing this for 20 years now. They've been following every single little aspect of our profession, asking the questions, reporting the exciting news, telling us what's changed on our frontier, and they've been doing it beautifully and respectfully. Art World News is a publication that I read from cover to cover every single month, and I hope you do as well. They're not only a fantastic sponsor of this show, but they are a part of my regular routine in learning about what's going on in our field. Before we go into our conversation with Theron Cambridge, I want to create a little bit of a mental image for you. I want to describe his business. He's going to talk a lot about his gallery, of course, but I know it firsthand, and and I think I owe you a description of what it's like, just so you have a little bit of context. The San Francisco Art Exchange that he owns with his partner Jim, well, it's been around since the early 1980s. And now, that just alone, if you're from our profession, you know a couple things about these guys. One, you know that they really know what they're doing. And the other one, and it's on the same theme, you know they're fucking tough as nails. And that's true. But what you don't know about their gallery, if you've never seen it up close and in person before, is it's unlike any other. That it's an expression of their own creativity and imagination, and, and really their ability to see categories of art that others haven't before them. You know, initially, they called the gallery the San Francisco Art Exchange because they planned it to be a blue chip style art gallery. Exchange almost like a stock exchange selling commodity-level art. You know, Picasso, Chagall, usual suspects. But that quickly went right out the window. They were, if you ask me, far too creative for that. They got an opportunity in their early, early stages to represent a very famous American artist that because no one recognized them as being a formal artist, the kind of artist that would be in an art gallery, that would be traded amongst collectors, because of that, He had never in his lifetime been seen in a gallery, and they had the opportunity to put on the first show for him ever, and that was the painter Alberto Vargas, the famed pinup artist of Esquire and Playboy magazine. It was just too exciting to not take up an opportunity like that, and they wanted to be the kind of art dealers who did that. Then quickly afterwards, they got the opportunity of showing the work for people like Roger Dean, who did album covers for Yes in Asia. After that, at some point, they got the opportunity to show the paintings of the rock and roll star from the Rolling Stones, Ronnie Wood. Galleries hadn't done that before. There wasn't rock stars in art galleries, but that seemed like fun, so they wanted to do that. They didn't know if it was gonna sell a ton. It just seemed like a fun thing to do. This summer, they've released a series of prints exclusively with the artist Shepard Ferry on the subject of civil rights. Why? Because they care about civil rights, and they wanted to be the gallery that would do that too. The gallery changes its form constantly. When you go in it, it's usually filled with photographs by famous rock and roll and celebrity photographers, but there's always a lot of surprises in there as well. It's a unique and special expression of creativity and imagination, and it's one that I am proud to be intimately familiar with. I just wanted you to have that picture while you listen to this conversation with Theron. And with that, please, enjoy getting to know someone who's very special to me, Darren Cambridge.
1: Obviously, you've got to pay the bills when you do an exhibition, or when you throw th- put things on the wall. Throw things on the wall. You say, I'm going to put things on the wall. They've got to work together. Uh, you curate a show. You, you compose a show, I guess. I generally don't start an exhibition with the idea, gee, we're going to make money doing this, which as a business person is absolutely stupid, I think, or most people it might judge it stupid, but it would be it's a funny. Board. I thought
0: the next thing you are going to say is that's the biggest mistake that other gallery owners have, is to start with how am I going to make money doing uh, this. Th- I would say so. <laughs> I mean,
1: uh, I think that might be true. I don't know. I don't know whether people are making mistakes or not making mistakes because I'm so focusing on trying to correct my own, I don't think about anybody else.
0: I mean, that puts you apart from a lot of people, too.
1: Yeah, it does okay well I maybe get, I, I think everybody's working in a vacuum to
0: some extent and yeah. usually the problem is is i they think they're in a genius vacuum but <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> but i think there's also a, a sort of i measure what
1: am i measuring up to as well it, to me that by itself is just a complete bore i'm not interested in what anybody else is doing it doesn't mean i don't care even if it has nothing to do with me but for me it's like you know i'm gonna dress myself I want to wear my clothes, the clothes I feel comfortable in, the the way I want to look, and I'm not going to look around and say, gee, what's that person wearing? I think I'll wear that shirt. Completely uninteresting. For me, it's sort of like, what ideas did I drive into, into San Francisco with and say, that's an interesting idea. Maybe we ought to pursue that or play around with that or come up with this concept. Evolution is occurring no matter what. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do. I could be counter to evolution in my own behavior. It's hard to know. For me, I just have to um, well, an artist follows a muse, I suppose. So maybe uh-huh. some of the things I do are muse-like. So when I do a civil rights exhibition or I do an album cover show or I do a, uh, a, a photo essay di- uh, discussing the years 1967, 68, 69, they come up with the idea first, and then you try to make it into something. I think the best painters go to a canvas with fresh, spontaneous ideas. The not so best painters think, what am I going to sell today? I think I'll probably sell roses, so I'll just do bouquets for the next three weeks, and maybe people will buy roses and I'll be able to make money. And if you're doing that, uh, as your mindset, at some point people are not going to be interested in flowers, and so it's counterproductive to pre-think what you're supposed to do. I'd rather let my imagination guide me and my pragmatism teach me to do well with that, that idea. I've been doing it for a long time and, and it's always stressful. It's always challenging. It's always difficult. You're always trying to um, solve problems, which I think is what business people do anyway. I think their chief, their chief requirement in any business is problem solving.
0: Yeah, but you seem to be describing it in a really specific way, actually. And, And I, and I, Kind of, to, one thing that's really stuck in my head that you're talking about earlier, which is, and I'm gonna get back to it in just a second. As you said, he started as an artist. Hmm. I, I've known you for 25 years. I didn't know that about you. Hmm. And um, but after you said that, I kept on thinking about how it, it sounds to me more like sculpting. You know, they say in the cliche, in sculpting is it's about chipping away what's not the sculpture. And when you start describing these shows, you know, that are theme based as being your your initial impetus of doing something it almost feels like what you're describing is doing that
1: it could be i mean in various, there's different you know art art related metaphors for it you know what does an architect do when they build a building they sketch it out and they figure that you know you got to you have to obviously structure a building or design a building so that the laws of physics are honored otherwise the building collapses so in many ways painting is like that you have to there are rules to painting you know, whether they're instinctive or they're conscious, there are rules to composition, color theory. And in sculpture, same thing. A well-composed sculpture is one of those things that uh, if you're going to chip away certain parts of that stone, you're not just arbitrarily chipping away pieces of the stone, you're conceiving a composition that follows in a certain aesthetic balance. It's, it's off balance as long as some of that stone is not removed sometimes when an artist will destroy their work or slash their canvas or toss it out it's because the balance just can't be achieved and it becomes maddening to even look at it
0: okay so what's the gallery equivalent to that
1: Hmm. good question i don't know
0: i mean it's a great metaphors but every step of the way i was thinking yeah there's rules of physics here Mm. you know what are those physics in our business and there's you know, there, there's a point when you're adding and you're building and there's a mm. point when you're destroying. And, but are, are there any cautionary you
1: know, rules that you've noticed about your own version of this? I mean, it's a cliche talking about getting outside the box or getting distance on a thing or getting away. Sometimes if you're so in the middle of it, some, it, it you're lost. You have to be willing to surrender to the idea that you are lost. And if you're going to survive it, And you're going to do the better thing than being stuck in this crappy thing. You have to be willing to take away, get distance, go away, forget it, drop it. Think about something, uh, let yourself think about something you've never thought before, which is kind of an outside the box thing. Get out of the paradigm you're in because you're trapped. And if you're not willing, or you're not, whatever you call it, brave enough, crazy enough, stubborn enough to just throw it all away and rethink exactly what you're doing, Um, then you're going to be stuck forever. You'll be in the La Brea tar pits and eventually you'll sink because you've become so attached to the thing that's counter to the the purpose that you choke your own dream or whatever. I mean, the reality is is it's always hard. It's always difficult. It's always complicated. They came to the conclusion that my life is almost entirely spent trying to recover from miscalculations and flawed assumptions. And to the degree that I can recover from those, 51% of the time, um, I'm getting somewhere. And it's the other thing about our business, I think, which is pretty wacky, I guess. I don't know. I guess it's wacky. Maybe it's what everybody does. I almost feel like I'm not, I'm never getting rich doing what I'm doing. I'm never making money. Uh I'm always taking the money I've got and putting it into something else that makes, moves the, you know, again, the made of Metaphor, it might be a train, and the train is on the track, and you just want to keep laying rail because you got places to go, and that's part of the process. Uh, that's the practical aspect of creativity, and I think in uh, an artist, a great artist, I think, uh, might be seen as a, a pragmatic idealist. You got somebody that uh, has this great passion, a vision, something they want to execute, something they want to manifest. But it would be hopeless to, be, to try to manifest anything of value if you're not disciplined to execute in a way that fulfills that dream and makes that dream real. Great technique, great passion, both. Can't have one without the other to make great art.
0: It also seems to be it's a world that's fraught with dichotomies, too. You know, and I don't mean just our world or just the artistic world, but our society in general, where we've got these two conflicting canards, uh, that, you know, there's the the guy who's bucking the system, you know, is going up against it. And then the long run, just because they persevered to persevere, you know, and pushed and pushed in the light of all contradictory information, you know, failure and other people telling them that they're wrong, they succeeded and they succeeded in a bigger way than anyone else has. And I think there's a big danger in that story that gets told. And then there's the other side of it, which is kind of goes back to your point about physics to all of this. Which is, well, no, there are rules here, not rules that are in the abstract form, like they're, you know, imputed by other people, but, you know, they're real, like, physical law universe kind of rules, you know. I, I know for me, every decision I make is always fraught with that pull, which is, I have an idea, and it seems to be going against what a lot of other people think, so am I either that crazy genius that perseveres in the future, or... Am I just that nut job that spends the rest of his life chasing the
1: wrong idea without checking in? Or the nut job that chases the right idea.
0: You, but, but you don't know. There's no way to measure it. And I guess, you know, I mean, you said at one point, which is the constant adjustment. But I, I want to jump back. You, you said you started as an artist, which I think is really interesting because one of the things that I get, I'm really curious about in doing these, you know, series of conversations is the fact that I think, I don't, I don't know if I've ever met anybody in our business where this is their A plan. You know, someone that grew up and said they wanted to be an art dealer or something like this. And I'm really fascinated with where people started.
1: I mean, one of the ways you may know, I mean, I've known you for a long time. I have a a hard time talking about myself, telling my story. I always come up with a certain structure of the things I cover in my story. And so that's what the story is. But I, you know, I'm more like a, I'm more I'm happier listening and asking questions, kind of like you're doing now, than I am talking about stuff, talking about myself especially. I mean, to lay out the idea that I started as an artist, that, you know, I was the kid in class that did all the artwork, the drawings, the, you know, I made cartoons when I was a teenager, did you know, my own version of Zap Comics when I was growing up. Did you get good feedback on that? I, don't, I just had fun. I guess having, ha, having fun and having friends read and look at what I was doing or my family means I got good feedback. So you're, but I mean, were you encouraged? Yeah, well, you know, I was encouraged. But I wasn't, I don't know, maybe I was looking for celebra- being celebrated maybe for my work. I don't know. I just felt like I had to do it. So, you know, I, when, when I was in high school at a science lecture, uh, I didn't take notes, I drew pictures. And often the pictures had nothing to do with the lecture. And, you know, I wasn't a great student, but I was able to get through school by doodling and drawing and coming, you know, doing things while I was uh, to lectures or whatever in class. As I was growing up uh, as a teenager, I started thinking about becoming a psychologist. I don't know why, I just was interested in psychology, interested in what made people do what they did and how they thought and sort of general observer of of different friends and seeing differences between them i was it wasn't conscious i was pretty aimless most of my uh hey i'm aimless now i was (laughs) uh, i was aimless most of my life because uh, i wasn't interested in going on to college unless it was when i wanted to study i wanted to study philosophy so i went to college to study philosophy i wanted to study uh Acting, then so I went to acting class and I went to acting schools because I was interested in acting. But I never saw myself going to university to, to pursue some sort of career in game unless it was going to be maybe psychology. Um, when I got out of high school, uh, I graduated early and just started hitch- hitchhiking around the country, hitchhiking through Canada, aimlessly kind of, not really deciding where I was going to go. I just went, be gone for a few months at a time, come back home. Go off again, come back home, but at some point, I uh, when I came back,
0: and that's at what age?
1: Uh, seventeen, seventeen, yeah. eighteen, nineteen. So this is a little bit before you really got into the art business. Well, no, or school. Yeah, I life was my school. I yeah. saw every everything I saw was an opportunity to learn something. I think I didn't. I didn't consciously view it that way, but in retrospect, I feel like. My curiosity kept me driving to go find out what I hadn't known before. Well, what did your parents do, by the way? About me or about work? No, no,
0: no. What, 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 I'm curious. You know, and obviously, you know, age-wise, you're, you're at a time where that's very much in the fashion, too. There's a sort of post Kerouac, you know, go discover yourself on the road thing. Mm. By the way, I'm a little younger, but I had the exact same kind of Jones. You know, I just wanted to be anywhere else, you mm-hmm. know, and just keep on moving. You know, I'm curious where you're coming from on this. Is it a middle-class family? Your parents professionals?
1: Mm, I guess middle-classes would be my... Both uh, parents, obviously, were out of the Depression. World War II. Uh, wanted everything for their kids. and uh, It's compl- complicated. It's complex because you're thinking of I'm the oldest son, first born big expectations on the son to become somebody make make a name for himself well, not make him a name but make a career yeah. so that he will prosper and survive blah 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 Were you feeling that pressure at the time Uh for a little while you know I was uh, I was pushed to be you know as a baseball player when I was a kid all-star game great player supposedly uh, and uh, that was the thing. My that was the the first dream that my father, I think, wanted to see me pursue because I was pretty good at it, and thought that would you that's a cool thing. And at some point, I just said, "No, I'm not going to do that anymore." Pissed him off. Then I went into judo and rose through the ranks, earned a brown belt at a young age. Blah blah blah. Uh, and then I said, "Okay, well, that's enough of that. I'm done." And that pissed him off because <laughs> I was I was excelling in these areas. Yeah and once I reached a certain point it was like I'm not interested in this anymore my my interest kept driving in a different way I continued to bias my car kept veering off the road I don't know I mean I just kept saying okay well I'm I'm not getting any more juice out of this piece of fruit so I'm going to move on and every time I do that it was this new disappointment my father especially would would have in me and uh and so at some point, I guess I must have broke that attachment to me becoming something significant or successful, that I was going to be aimless and wandering. I started hitchhiking around, and that was just like, uh, thank, very thankfully and very appreciatively, my parents allowed me to do that. You know, What,
0: what if they, they didn't?
1: What did they do? What if they did it? What if they didn't? Yeah. Hmm, good question. Uh, well, uh, you know, I ran away from home one time, so I suppose that means that I would have still done what I was doing. I wasn't using drugs, I wasn't, you know, doing bad things or breaking into th- and doing any criminal things. I was just having to find something, do things, you know, just didn't make sense to anybody. It certainly didn't make any sense to my parents. Uh, so they would, worry. I'm sure they worried. I'd be gone for weeks at a time. I might call from time to time to let him know I'm okay, but generally I was out in the middle of nowhere. Could have been in numerous I've been it was numerous numerous circumstances that I could have been bad, badly injured or killed. And somehow they I guess made room for me to do that. Um, and my father I think to to some degree must have Slightly admired my, what he might have said, seen as courage or or independence or whatever, even though it was kind of wacky or weird. When he saw me just doing what he considered aimlessly moving here or there, never going to amount to anything, doing this job, that job, boutique job, whatever, I mean, he saw art business as sort of a boutique thing. When he saw that I'd opened my own gallery, it was quite large, 3,000, 4,000 square feet, he came to see the gallery for first time. And he told me after he was there, saw a staff of 15 people working for me or whatever the number was. Is this the
0: uh, gallery you have now?
1: Yeah. Same place? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he, he said something. He said, you know, I kn- you never did anything the way I wanted you to do it. And he said, yet you figured it out. Something like that. He, he gave me credit for being able to make it my way, kind of. And, you know, he died a couple of years later, but he openly said that after visiting my gallery for the first time.
0: That must have been fantastic.
1: It was. It was special for him to, you know, he was, I don't know, I would, I guess I would say that he was fairly guileless. He said what was on his mind whenever he wanted to and didn't have an agenda when he said it. So it's kind of that neat
0: duality too, isn't there, with kids where you simultaneously can get excited for things that are achievements that they want and be happy for them as much as get an enjoyment out of them doing something that maybe you don't think you did yourself.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, wa- th-
0: and wanted to, obviously. Yeah. I think maybe my, not be an art dealer, but getting something in your life that maybe reflected a little bit more personal passion or something you can declare as being your own more.
1: I think my father's generation, or at least him, and I think it was pretty common for depression era especially, is that, and maybe even prior, is you, you just work at a job. You're going to hate it yeah you do it for 30 years you retire you're going to hate it for 30 years and you're not going to want to do it but you just have to do it and you just, that's it and uh, in some ways i admire that ability to just stick with it and just get through it but i never saw my life that way i didn't want to get a job that i didn't like doing everything i did i wanted to do whatever it was i was a janitor for a period of time fine it was good 18 19 year old kid making money big deal I don't mind doing this; it's kind of fun. I'm independent, uh-huh. working on myself on my own. Uh, eventually, I went into uh, a community uh, drug center and uh, did counseling, drug counseling, suicide prevention, uh, some family and couple counseling. Now, this is after training. you
0: obviously got your degree in psychology.
1: No, didn't have a no. degree. nope, nope. I so thought this is I was closer gonna...
0: to coming off
1: of the road and coming off around. the road and being you know being there, been there, done that. I used to help people that OD'd when I was a kid, you know, people would be having what you might, in those days, called a bad trip, and I would be yeah. the, the guide or whatever, so I was working with people as part of my life anyway, when I was on the road. You used to call it babysitter? Uh, yeah, that, even prior to that, yeah, that's why <laughs> you used to call it babysitter. So,
0: Although that was during the better part. You know, it's just the, that's just the one like, it's just a drug.
1: It's, yeah, it's still a drug. Involved. Yeah, still a drug. The drug will go yeah. away. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Nothing but your head. But you're going to have to change your own damn diaper when this is over. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love that thing they talk about from Woodstock, but they had the tent specifically for oh, people yeah. who OD'd. Oh, yeah. And the whole tradition of the tent was once people got topside on the drug and started sobering up and coming around, they said, now it's your turn. Like, uh-huh. you got, you have to stay in this tent and take on and help the, next the next guy one. that comes yeah, on like and that. Yeah. That's how Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's like a warrior that takes care of wounded warriors, kind of.
0: I mean, that's that's
1: crazy. So, so how long did you do that? Well, I worked in a community uh, drug council. You know, I was a crisis intervention guy. I was the team captain. So, three o'clock in the morning, you get a call at the house, and you got you get in your car, pick up your team member, and go find out what's going on. Somebody's going to kill themselves, or they're OD'd, or and you assess the situation, make decisions on site. Don't worry, keep walking. That's whatever you do to keep keep them stitched together during that time. Everything is fine, or you or you get them set up to go to the hospital. Yeah, and so you make those. You know, midnight, post midnight, middle of the you know wee hours of the morning kind of decision. So I did that for a period of time.
0: Not to jump you along, but I'm guessing that's what makes you feel like psychology is the direction to go into. That you feel positive yeah, well, yeah, I liked it. about this I liked experience. It a lot.
1: Yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed the process. I liked working with people. I liked. Uh, I just enjoyed it. So some of my colleagues at the drug council told me that they just picked up a. They they're working at a mental hospital in town. Yeah. It's a locked mental hospital, and they said, you'd be good at this. You ought to come over and apply for the job. And two of them were there already, so I went over, and and I was hired on the spot. Worked on the lock wards in a private mental hospital for about uh, two years. Uh, psychotics, schizophrenics, anematic depressive, m- multiple diagnoses, uh, some dangerous, dangerous to others, some dangerous to themselves.
0: Now, I have the unfair advantage that I know that
1: you were, this is the hospital where one fluid, the cuckoo's nest was bred in. No, that was the next hospital. That's the next hospital. That's okay. Right. okay. Yeah. But that was where I got my feet wet. And I like. it. Because I can't
0: it. help myself now. Like every time you're talking about what's looking like on that ward, I'm just pretending. You're seeing to cuckoo's them, nest. Exactly. I get exactly. it. Exactly.
1: Well, that leads me to the next, uh, the next chapter is that I ended up then getting a job at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Menlo Park.
0: Did that bring it to the Bay Area?
1: No, I'd always lived in the Bay Area. Oh, yeah, your name? I was always okay. a Bay Area kid. I mean, even though I was jumping around the planet, I'd always come back here. So I'm, I grew up in the Bay Area and okay. always keep coming back. So I was um, brought into a program to, to work on a study that had a particular study in, in treatment of schizophrenia. And by the way, this is the same hospital and some of the same psychiatrists who came out of there were part of the acid, cool, uh, uh, the acid test. Not, not Ken Kesey's version but at the time some of these people were experimenting with a new drug and they saw it as a treatment for schizophrenia which was LSD you know there was a number of people testing the program so some of these people were still working on the on the ward when I when I started there uh, one of the nurses I worked with ran the night shift when Ken Kesey was working on cuckoo's Nest way back prior and I remembered you know him typing away at his typewriter and so I worked on the ward where people came in right fresh off of a crisis, psychotic break. You know, they were talking to they were hearing voices, they were talking out loud, you might have been Satan or you could have been an angel when they came in and so you're dealing with uh really patients in super crisis. They can't be on the street because they'll either kill somebody or kill somebody else. Then at some point then I went from that locked ward, maybe a year I was on the locked ward, working with patients. And then when patients would, what you might call stabilize, no longer hearing voices, that kind of thing, they'd come on to an out semi-outpatient thing. And so I ran that ward forever. I'm sure I worked with some of the guys that, that uh, were profiled in Cuckoo's Nest, maybe one or two. Uh, when Kesey wrote Cuckoo's Nest...
0: Some of the patients.
1: Uh, some of the patients and probably some of the, some of the aides maybe, uh-huh. could be, could be. I don't want to say that's who they were because these, the guys I worked with are really nice guys, but there might've been guys that it's weren't so nice. It's not like so
0: you nice. know who Nurse Ratchet would have been.
1: Well, it's interesting. The nurse I worked with, is said when Kesey had finished that book, um, there were three nurses that worked at, at the Palo Alto VA were convinced that they were Ratchet. Each <laughs> of the three thought she, she was it turned out they were composites of these three nurses but they were all pissed off with them because you wrote about me (laughs) what an admission that is huh well yeah isn't that telling that it's instead of a complete denial
0: yeah and what do you imagine like whoever it would be if there was one nurse that it was being profiled on that would be the one that would be like well i know it's not me yeah
1: yeah (laughs) and here are three that probably said oh you're just trying to take me down and said yeah there's probably some reality in that story but that book was already written before you even got in there, right? Oh yeah. In fact when it so was So that was
0: in your head as you you're in that place. I mean imagining you read it.
1: No, I hadn't read it up to that point. No?
0: No. So you didn't even know it no, had a reputation. I knew
1: I knew a lot of the people who worked with them before I actually knew the story. Okay. I mean I did know the story. In fact I remember probably the first year, or the second year I was there, uh several of us said, Why don't we go see the play? And it's interesting to be there with the older nurses who were part of the the entourage that went there to watch the play. Who would have known Keesey, and that's why they wanted to see the play. So I did that for a period of time. I did that for two years in the VA. Great experience. All this time, I'm doing this work in psych, and maybe I'll go on to become a psychologist. And my father could never get why I liked it. Huh. In like fact, most people can't understand why I liked working with psychotics or schizophrenics or mental patients. Don't understand how could you do that? It must be really hard or very difficult or very challenging. And I said, No, I loved. I loved it. I loved doing it. So. I guess if your mind is open, you're learning stuff all the time. So maybe that's the, the thing. I'm always interested, always curious to learn things, have to... You know, there's a line that uh, Picasso had, which maybe I related to right away. And the line was something like, I have to do the things I don't know how to do so I can learn how to do them. <laughs> and The process for me is almost always trying things. And often I screw things up because I don't know what the hell I'm doing, so... If they're they're critical, then probably I'm the wrong person in the room. But uh there's this always this idea of seeing what's new, trying something different, going somewhere I'd not been. So uh when I finished with the VA, well finished is not the word. I I, I was with the VA for two years. That was that's was four years in institutions, and then um I decided I wanted to go around the world. I hadn't seen a lot of things and I was curious about the world, so I cashed out all of my uh What was the bigger part? Were you done with the VA or were you being drawn more to traveling around the world? I was drawn. I was fine with the VA. I was fine with the VA. In fact, when I came back from traveling, I went back and worked in mental health after being gone. Uh Um, So I cashed out all the retirement account I had at the VA, piled it all in one bank account, bought a round-the-world ticket, figured I'd be gone for a year, maybe two years, charted a whole bunch of countries I wanted to see, go to, see what it was like, And, uh, there's not a single place that I went to that I had a plan. I just landed at the airport, just looked around. I'm going to go stay. I'll see if I can find a place to stay. And that, that I did for almost a year, you know, started off in Hawaii, but then went down to New Zealand and Australia, Southeast, several countries in Southeast Asia, Nepal, India. And I was planning to continue to move further west. Uh, I like there's
0: an obvious arc, by the way, to what you're describing there. It's this kind of every step. I, I'm hearing it as a traveler. is a little bit more of a challenging type of place to go. You yeah, know, Hawaii is like the, the easiest place step so anybody Hawaii. could possibly oh, yeah. go to in the world virtually, yeah. right? You know, yeah. other than maybe now Las Vegas, mm. you know. And then, of course, New Zealand, all right, it's, it's different to another okay. country, but but it's English-speaking. You know, <laughs> sure, safe, relatively safe, and, and they're also kind of come from the same place. They're offshoots from England, just like we are. You know, and speak the same um, language, right? Right. I'm, I'm waiting for the next one that you're gonna tell me, like, you know. Well, then I was hanging out with the uh, the bogey tribe, <laughs> the witch. Tri- oh, well, that was an, epic- you know, where men come from, the cannibals. Oh, you know? <laughs> wow.
1: I actually wanted to go to New Guinea. I was actually planning to go to New Guinea at some uh-huh. point, but I ran out of time. So I've. So you're working your way deeper into Southeast Asia, it sounds like. The heart of darkness. (laughs) Yeah, I went out in islands and slept in jungles and Uh huts and just wherever, just meet people and steamers and trains and tons of experiences. Uh, I remembered at least three times having a nightmare that I was back home. I'd wake up and say, I would wake up and I was thinking myself, I had to go back home. And thinking that you're going back home now, or you are home, and I wake up in the morning and I'd be staring at a bamboo roof, saying, "Thank God that didn't happen," because I didn't, you know, I was ready to go to the next thing, and and not continuing was a drag to me.
0: I, I've had that same nightmare traveling, but usually it's the ceiling of a ramada. <laughs> 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 it's not nearly as sexy. And then yeah. the next process is. What town am I? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that's right. What city is this? Yeah, but all right. So for you, me, so I'd be laying in a in a in a room like that scene in Apocalypse Now, where the yeah. guy's looking at the fan, right, the right. right the so pow, I'd be waking up pow, pow, in the morning, exactly. Yeah. I'd be looking at that fan, and I'd watch a gecko crawl across the ceiling, hunting a moth or something like that. And I say, "Thank God I'm not home now." <laughs> and that, that made it clear that I wasn't home. But I got. I was in India for about a month or so, and at some point got. Seriously ill. I lost uh, probably 20 pounds, maybe more. What did you get sick with? Uh, I ended up getting hepatitis. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably from a street vendor, I don't know what, somewhere in Bombay. And, uh, and I was misdiagnosed at first, so I just got sicker and sicker and, and uh, weak. And so when I finally got diagnosed with hepatitis, I probably weighed about 120 pounds. You know, where I'm at right now, I'm probably weighed 155, so... So, I wired home, and I said, "Listen, um uh sick, or whatever I'm flying back. Let Let 'em know that i'm I cashed in my ticket, ended up flying back, and uh So that nightmare did take place. It just didn't take place the way I thought yeah the I- irony is well, you're like
0: right in the sense that it came to an end. It came to an end, and, and it was taken away from you
1: It was taken away based on you know risk right, and taking risks ultimately caught up, but you know it could have been worse. There were plenty of times I could have ended up in Got in a big argument with a, with a customs guy in, uh, in Rangoon, in uh, Burma. And uh, those guys could have slammed me in the jail. They just could have put me in jail and you know, said, get your, let your country get you out of here. Because mm-hmm. I just was arguing with them. But there's been several different times where I could have been locked up just because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or killed, I suppose. If I had not, interesting, my, I was heading toward Iran. I was going to be in Iran about two months after I got sick and came home. Coincidentally, I would have been there during the revolution had I ended up in Iran at the time that I was planning to be there. I looked at, you know, different calendars and different timelines, sort of saying, I wonder where I would have been then. And I realized probably at the time that had occurred, uh, there would have been uh, madness. So who knows? Maybe I would have been taken out then.
0: It must have come up that you were in the same place at the same rough time as as Jim, your yeah. business partner of the oh, yeah. last, you know, what are we now, uh, 30 years? Uh, 32. 32 years, right. Yeah, because
1: he was working in Iran at the time. He was time. working in Iran. He was the yeah. guy in the suit, and I was the guy with the backpack. Yeah. And I could have, in theory, been in Tehran at the same time as him right. at that time.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think we got the makings for our sitcom. The
1: guy in the suit, the guy in the backpack, you know. <laughs> I thought I was living a sitcom.
0: I mean, it's like, isn't it always? It's the setting, right? It's like, all right, the place is Iran. This guy's suit. This guy's hit me on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and together, they have a musical act at the Hilton. You know,
1: so- Dharma and Jim. <laughs>
0: So so I, w- I want to get quickly here because, like, I'm dying with all these things. And I'm, like, making the connection back to the gallery world. One of the ones is, that like, it is coming to mind is, like, you know, we definitely have a risky profession of sorts as far as, you know, money gamble, if nothing else, right? But I, I think, and I know so many people in our field that do really well that have, like, backgrounds where... Um, This is nowhere near the risk. It's not a big deal to take a flyer on something in a business context when in your background, you know, deep in your brain is an experience of, you know, I mouthed off to a bunch of cops in a third world country who were perfectly comfortable throwing me in a prison that I would never return from. You know, in contrast to that, taking on this show is not really a big concern.
1: I grew these white hairs for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always tough. You're always but you know, it's yeah. all it's all it's it's rel- relative, but the thing is if you really care and you really want to succeed, that care is what drives you on. That care is the thing that adds to the stress to me. Right. I care. I want it to succeed. I want to take care of my family. I want the gallery to prosper. I want us to evolve. I want us to do the next great thing, whatever that happens to be. And if I stop caring, I guess I could probably think, well, screw it. Who cares, you know? Lose it all. I don't care. And it's not, it's not because I fear loss so much as I, I seek uh, not success, but uh, fulfillment. Mm-hmm. You know, a successful show is not how much we made that night or that w- month. We need to pay the bills. We need to have a little extra money to reinvest. But a successful show, in large part, is the reaction the feeling when I walk in and it feels right, or people come in uh, and say great things about this show. The reward is the response we get from people who come in. You know, I often tell people that uh, because of what we do, because because of the art we focus on, which is pop culture, I could have a a uh, a very successful CEO of a company, tell say a Silicon Valley company knocking down three to five million dollars a year or more. And they'll come in, and they'll like what we have, and they'll gravitate toward an image, for example, of Jimi Hendrix, which is one of my favorites. And that person will go on and on about how great Jimi was. Nobody could do that. he's the greatest. Too bad we lost him. Greatest, you know, special, all the special things people say about Jimi. And that guy would go. Maybe he'd buy, maybe he wouldn't. But sometime within the same day, a homeless person could walk in. Some guy that will walk in, look around the gallery, this is awesome, this is cool, whatever, because everybody's welcome in the gallery as long as they don't, you know, ruin anything. And that person could go to the same photograph of Jimi Hendrix and say pretty much the same things the CEO said, with the same authority, with the same visceral aspect of that experience. And to me, that's sort of the successful communication the gallery represents to a broader group of people. It's not, you know, I've, I've sold Chagall, as you know, I've sold Picasso, Moreau, and... Look at all, I mean, every artist that you could probably think of, I probably handled work by them at one time or another, but there's not a single exhibition that I could do with Chagall that would pull that kind of reaction from such a broad uh, base of experiences in that spectrum. That's, it wasn't planned that way. That's the other thing, is that people will look at me and say, boy, you must have been really visionary to think of this market nobody cared about, pinup and Vargas and rock and roll photographs and celebrity art and and uh whatever else we're doing but it was never done by plan we never planned geez let's let's take a niche market and make it into a business profile never thought that it's just sort of like let's do this and let's see if we can make money doing it and stay a business and this would be fun this is exciting let's do a show with ronnie wood it's never sold in a gallery before let's let's give it a go Vargas never sold his work in a gallery or any time in his lifetime. Let's do an exhibition about that and see what that what does that. And turns out, by doing all those things, or rock photography, or an Andy Leibovitz exhibition in '89, whatever we did, all these things, during a period nobody cared, nobody was interested, and it wasn't like we were going to take the market and build the market out of something nobody cared about. No, we just did it, and now everybody's saying, "Oh, you guys started this. You guys are pioneers."
0: You know, you know what it makes me, makes me think of right now?
1: What? CBGBs.
0: They sought out initially, actually. The CBGBs standard for um, uh, country bluegrass, you know, right. something. And right, it was right, just right. kind of a shell of a nothing club. And the guy, though, had this great spirit of the underdog. Mm-hmm. You know, there was all these kids in the neighborhood with different bands. And I mean, you know, young people. And he just was all open to anybody you know, coming in that seemed to have something going on behind their work. And, you know, if people got behind his original vision for country and bluegrass, that was great. But that just isn't, isn't what happened. And what came out of it was he was giving mic time to pretty much every major punk and new wave band that ever came out in the United States. Right. You know, it's, it's it's where uh, the talking heads come from probably most famously, Mm -hmm. but you know, the list of people who came through there and at, You can look at it in retrospect and say, you know, this guy had a vision and he knew exactly what (laughs) what was of the moment, what was going to click and who had that, you know, voice that needed to be heard. No, he's just a guy who rented a space and Mm. sold booze and just was cool to flow with anything that just seemed like it could be neat. Right. And I'm sure there's 10 I relate
1: to that entirely. Yeah,
0: and there's probably 10 times as many bands, by the way, that came through that are worthless and no one ever has heard of. You know, as I was. might
1: change the name of the gallery to CBGBs now because it's gone. Go for it, you won't get sued. CBGBs, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but
0: but you know, it, it's 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 like the part about like biopics that drives me crazy, in a lot of people, you know. Yes, all puzzle pieces fit beautifully and elegantly in place when you look backwards, backwards. Mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it's it's very easy to only see the things that lead up to something, but. You know, I won't mention names right now, but I've been around for a number of shows in your gallery. And if we were off mic, we could mention names of ones that are like, we just go, well, I guess no one gave a shit about those guys, you know, Mm -hmm. and still don't and never will. But it was, you know, you put on the show with the same ethic of, hey, it's kind of cool. I -hmm. like it. Mm -hmm. Let's make it fun and see what happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's pretty much it. You start doing something uh, even opening an art business to begin with. You started an art gallery. Jim and I worked on the 10th floor of a gallery, or, of, an office, trying to m- be art dealers, brokerage. You know, we came out of a gallery and we started our own business. Well, let from, me roll you back a little bit yeah. further that because, you're
0: right. I mean, I, I'm jumping over whatever, you know, the things that happened to the rest of your story. The got you no, there. But I get but all of what you're saying. But I, but I want awesome. I want to jump you into, because there's a part of your history that's really early on that's fascinating with me and I want to go explore this at some time. Okay. Mm uh and it's is gallery one and is that your first gig first gallery yeah
1: no okay no. Where, where, where was the first gallery well when i came back from that trip i decided while i was traveling i wanted to be an art dealer uh-huh. i saw a lot of art and i said well when i get back to the states i go back into psych maybe become a psychologist whatever i realized
0: was the f- crazed fever of hepatitis Hmm? <laughs> right, exactly. I didn't know what I was thinking at the time. What could be wrong with me? It was a,
1: either that or a ballerina. Yeah. <laughs> I would be a case study in madness as a result of hepatitis.
0: So, so, no, but you had this kind of idea that you wanted
1: to be an artist. When family. I was traveling, and it, I, I didn't. How does that hit right? you in places like New Guinea or wherever you were? Well, because every place had a lot of art. You know, the yeah. thing that really got me in the art business, I started to travel and I started seeing Chinese porcelain, it just dazzled the heck out of me. Yeah. And I thought, well, gee, if I go back to the States, wouldn't it be cool to be dealing in Chinese artifacts and and uh, porcelain and just mind-blowing things? And I remember the first time uh, when you go to these very shrines and places, I was in the middle of some jungle somewhere and there was like this big shrine and, you know, I took a either motorcycle or bicycle out there, whatever. and parked it and as you're leaving you sign your name, where you come from, what do you do for a living? And I can see it clearly that I wrote my name, you know, California, whatever, whatever I wrote, art dealer. I put wrote art dealer in there without even knowing what the hell an art dealer does. I just figured, okay, well when I get back, I've got to figure out do I have to be an appraiser or do I have to do this? Would I have to go to school? I was actually thinking about what it would take to become an art dealer the longer I started doing that. So every time I went to a new place and signed in, I was an art dealer. By the time I got back to the States, it's an interesting period because it was, I was pretty sick for a long time. I was yellow for a long time. So I went on a regimen to get healthy and exercise and run and all that stuff. But, uh, so I started working psych and I was studying acting in Berkeley and, uh, thought I might become maybe work on, work on the stage. Being an actor, just new dream. Robert De Niro inspired me. So then I thought, well, I'm going to pound the pavement. I'm going to try to get a job in a gallery. I don't know how to do it. Nobody wanted to hire me. I had no experience. And I was just about... So this is around in San Francisco? San Francisco. Yeah. Fisherman's Wharf. Right. Union Square. Swanson's is around. Kind of like uh, that. Swanson's. Went to uh-huh. Swanson's. Uh, yeah. You don't have any experience, so you're not going to... I mean, I didn't have any sales experience, let alone art-dealing experience. And uh, My first remember, art gallery interview, they asked me how big my client list was. Ah, nice. Yeah. Well, they're all over six feet tall. Does that help you? <laughs> 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 so I remember talking to a friend of mine, because I was just stuck. I couldn't get a job in a gallery. I wasn't sure I wanted to be an actor. And uh, I watched this... I was watching this TV program... Uh, it was when there was a lot of, uh, people leaving Cambodia because of what was going to Khmer Rouge and that yeah. sort of thing. And I watched these kids just trying to get out of there, get so on you mean this is the boat. the boat people period but, and it's uh, post- just killing Fields. Yeah, it was the po- it was right on the Killing Fields time and I was watching these kids just trying to swim out to this cameraman's boat while they were yeah. pulling away and it just broke my heart. And, uh it made me remember that I was only in that part of the world just a few months prior. So I, I, told, I told my friend, okay, I'm going to get a job in the next month. If I don't get a job at a gallery in the next 30 days, I'm going back. I'm going to go work in the camps in northern Thailand, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go back. That's why I like being over there anyway, and I, I decided that's what I was going to do. Sometime after that, you know, I kept looking for jobs, and finally some... Little Podunk Gallery hired me, and I was just elated. I was elated that somebody was going to give me a shot at, at a gallery. I was excited. I actually brought that energy into one of, my, uh, one of my acting classes. I had to do a scene where I'm supposed to be excited. <laughs> so that was, the, that was where I got that reserve from.
0: Do you think it was a good thing that it was a Podunk Gallery? Was it good? Yeah, versus having gotten a
1: job at a more
0: I don't advanced know.
1: gallery. I don't know. I think in some ways it taught me a lot of stuff I wouldn't have learned in a big gallery because that gallery is in trouble. <laughs> that guy was going to go bankrupt. He was going to close the gallery. He Couldn't make rent. And did he know what he was doing? I don't know. He was part of an absentee management. Uh, you know, we had Moreau in there. We had uh-huh. Picasso and Chagall. A bunch of you know. We, we actually sold Russian icons there from the twelfth to. Fourteenth century, I guess. That's nice. A mixed and criminal. bag. Huh? <laughs> I said, that's nice and criminal. Ah <laughs> oh, yeah. Well these actually were legit, gen- legitimately came into the country. They might have been smuggled in. Oh, okay. Some of them weren't smuggled in, but I I learned a lot about icon icons. Just learned a lot, even learned to read Cyrillic after a while. So at some point he was going down the tubes and this other guy that was there and I decided, Why don't we just buy this gallery? Isn't that wacky? Kid twenty six year old kid or whatever, twenty five, twenty six. Uh, so let's just buy this gallery So I put up money And he put up money We paid a rent We negotiated with the landlord Who owned the hotel That uh-huh. they was renting uh, Turned out not to be working well But while we were fin- final negotiations We are actually competing With another outfit And so he just didn't like them? I don't know what happened in that room I don't know The landlord is a pretty tough customer Rude Gruff Cigar out of the corner of his mouth, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And uh, the guy that was negotiating, the two guys that were negotiating, one came into the gallery because it was going to be our turn next. And he looked at me and he said, I heard some things about you. If this does not work out, I'm opening up a gallery in Souther Street. You come up and see me. Huh. And I said, okay, well. And then we went and we failed and the gallery vaporized. And I went up and was my first hire at the gallery, Gallery One. On okay. Saturday. That's... This is what year? Uh, 1980. My first, a... my first day as an art dealer in that little gallery, Union, Union Art Gallery, was August 3rd, 1979. Uh-huh. August 3rd, 1978, I was probably in Nepal or in India.
0: That's a pretty nice time to start in the business.
1: I don't know. A year later, as I was working on it, and there was another recession. I thought, maybe I, w- I should have been born independently wealthy because this thing sucks. Yeah, a, I, I, I It's hard guess. to make a living. Right, right. I mean, it, I like doing it, but I realized I wasn't making any money. Because in those days, if you are working in a gallery floor, there was no draw. There was no cushion. There was nothing. Yeah. You go in and you sell something, you make money. You go in and you sell nothing, you make no money. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to pay, pay your bills? So at some point it got depressing because that was during the beginning of a new, uh, a new recessionary period. And we had great stuff in there. You know, we had one of the original Andy Warhol soup cans in the show, in one of the shows we did. We had Rauschenberg, we had Murrow, Dali, uh, Rockwell. I mean, great stuff. Couldn't sell it. Can you imagine paying $30,000 for a Warhol soup can today? That's, that was a big... <laughs> that was what you could have bought a soup can for at that show.
0: Well, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they came out at eight. Probably. When it, when they first were shown in a... Um... Outside, that was of, of, outside of New York was a Beverly Hills show, I think, or actually a, a La Brea show.
1: We had original uh, Rockwell paintings, drawings, and studies that we didn't sell anything either. Uh, but the good thing about being in that gallery is I was the first hire, and I was souped in nuts. Hung the gallery, dealt with vendors, met art art dealers, and and pretty much knew, met sources for art, all kinds of things. So... If I was going to be immersed yeah. as a sponge. And that, how long were you there? Let's see. I was there from in 1980. Uh, I met a woman who would ultimately become my wife that same year. Did my first big deal that year. How big was that deal? Uh, I sold an original Moreau monotype that was hanging in a museum at the time for $60,000. Uh, That's a huge so. deal for 1980. I was negotiating. I was in, the, in Asia, ironically. Yeah, Uh, in places uh, in Malaysia. And we did that deal over the phone. 1980. Can you imagine that? I'm just thinking about that right now. Yeah, In those days. Son of a gun. And those
0: huge phone deals are surreal, aren't they? Yeah. Isn't it weird at the end of it? It's like, I said some things, and then he said some things, and now I'm hanging down, and sixty thousand dollars has just transpired which you know in today's money is more like saying a half a million dollars like that transpired Mm -hmm.
1: and i had only been an art dealer for less than a year yeah so it was like a brand new thing and to me it wasn't you know i had that experience in your gallery yeah vaguely about
0: nine months in i did 125 what was that was that
1: what was that a vargas it was a vargas it Uh was the
0: handpiece she's like Single, like a oh, study of hand yeah. or something like that. Yeah. 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 Good work. Sold it to a doctor, had a little help. <laughs> <laughs> Team was on it. Yeah. But I went through the biggest case of postpartum depression after that. And it was because when I started, you know, less than a year prior to that, it was like that was my goal. When I have sold a hundred thousand dollar single piece of artwork, I know I have. I hit some sort of milestone Mm -hmm. that gave me a right to say, I've done something. You know, Mm -hmm. I've I've come a certain distance in knowing how to do this job. Mm -hmm. And then it hit way too early for where I set the (laughs) marker. And I (laughs) I had in my mind, I'm going to spend the next 20 years chasing that high. (laughs) I me mean, looking for new veins every right. morning you know the new the next month
1: started at zero all over again
0: <laughs> right 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 and the, you know the next day i'm working some four hundred dollar prints you know <laughs> you know and, and they're giving me a time and they're trying to haggle sure do it whatever as yeah. <laughs> far as i was concerned i the rest of my career is orson wells no. you know <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I did Citizen Kane.
0: Okay, I'll talk about your wine. Drunk and angry. (laughs) I know, I know, I know I ended that way too abruptly, but uh, hell, it took me forever to even find a break point in there. Uh, I thought it would end just on a laugh for fun. Uh, There's a reason for that. Uh, The reason is, as fascinating as it is and as great of a conversation as it was, it was equally as long as it was wonderful. So long and so wonderful that it was deserving of two episodes. And I tell you, I tried. I I went at it with a big pair of scissors and I tried to cut down all the fat. And I got to tell you, when you're dealing with a guy like Theron, there just isn't a lot of fat. There's just a lot of good stories and a lot of great information in there. And I just, I couldn't do that to you. I had to be fair. So uh, look forward to that. We'll be back in a couple weeks with uh, part two of uh, the podcast episode. And in the meanwhile, please check out our sponsors, Go give a, a look at, at relevantcommunications.net and check out what's going on with a fantastic publicist, Allison Zucker-Perlman and her team. And pick up your copy of Art World News. If you're not a subscriber, go over to their website, get on their list and make sure that you're a subscriber. And if you are and you haven't read that from cover to cover, well, well shame on you. It's worth it. Uh, so for now, until next time. I bid you, my fellow art dealers, a good evening and a good art selling. This has been The Art Dealer Show. Come visit us online at artdealer.show.